Good morning. Uh, my name is Jeff Skipper. Good to be with you this morning as we take a break from all the news. So much news right now. We live in an age of constant news. There's a lot of old news going on. If you watch ESPN, I've watched a lot of uh, World Series games from the 80s right now. Uh, there's a lot of fake news in our society. I'm not going to pick any parties on that. Uh, there's most of what we hear is bad news. And so we love when we finally, rarely get some good news. Actually, just this week, actor John Krasinski started what he's calling the Good News Network. He had this 15-minute YouTube video that went viral where he only covered good news from around the world. Uh, people loved it because we're all on the edge of our seats for good news. The prophet Isaiah said, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And whether you're a Christian or not, you can say amen to that. And the central message of Christianity is the gospel, and that word just means good news. It's the news that in Jesus, God has done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Last week, Drew preached how Jesus lived the perfect life in our place that we haven't lived. But that's not all of the good news. He also came to die the death we deserve to die so that we could be pardoned for our sins. So the main message of Christianity isn't advice. It's not instruction. It's not primarily about what we need to do. You know, when the angels showed up to announce Jesus's birth, if they had said, we bring you instructions, the whole world would have just groaned. But instead, they said, we bring you good news of great joy, and everyone started singing. Read the birth narrative in Luke. If there's just more to do, if that's the message of Christianity, like most other religions, then Christianity is a burden. It's work. It's duty. But if it's good news of something that's been done, then we can rest. And it'll bring delight and joy. And so in a world that's just bombarded with bad news right now, hear this good word. That the bad news will come and go, but the good news of salvation, of all things being made new through Jesus Christ, will last forever. But what's interesting is that this good news is bound up in Jesus' death. Good news bound up in a cross, which seems strange. If you've read biographies, really ever, typical biographies are laid out with maybe one chapter on the person's birth, um, you know, a few chapters on their adolescence, and then the majority of the biographies on their career, their family life, and then at the end, maybe there's one chapter on that person's death. But in the four mini biographies of Jesus we have, called the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there is a disproportionate amount of ink spent on Jesus' death. For example, in Mark, half of the book is on his death, eight out of 16 chapters. So the cross was obviously very central and special to the biblical authors. Something important happened on it. And the cross was also the center of Paul's theology. He said things like this in Galatians 6.14, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 2.2, 2, he didn't say this. He didn't say, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. As important, as necessary, as good as the Sermon on the Mount is, but rather, Paul said, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The early church, they had to decide on a symbol for their movement. Think of the various things they could have chosen. We walk around with what on the end of our necklaces and you know, the signs on our church and our bumper stickers and Facebook memes. We could have chosen a scroll for our sign for Christianity, our symbol, to represent knowledge or wisdom. Maybe an empty tomb to, to represent victory. 
A throne would have been nice. Uh, it represent power and authority, maybe a dove for peace. But rather, the early church chose an ancient execution device reserved for the worst criminals. What happened, as the song says, on that wonderful, tragic, mysterious tree? Well, many things happened. The cross is like a diamond. We could turn it uh, weeks upon end and look at all the different facets of the cross. We could see that the cross is the suffering love of God on display for humanity. We see his heart for us. It's Jesus being raised up, defeating his enemies and more. Yet because there are so many different things we can learn from the cross, there's so many different takeaways, it can be easy to miss the main thing. I took my boys to a spring training game a couple years ago, and Justin Verlander was pitching uh, before he played for the Cheater Astros. He was still in the Tigers, um, and Miguel Cabrera was in the lineup. He, he had just won the Triple Crown. There were home runs in this game. There were great plays. It was, there was so much to take in, and yet on the way home, all my boys wanted to talk about were hot dogs and ice cream that they had at the game. And I just thought, you guys missed it. I mean, for them, they didn't miss it. They got, that was their main thing. But they, they missed the main thing. It's easy to do. And it's an alarming fact that we can stand before the cross of Jesus and miss it. I mean, we, we might enjoy the model of Jesus' life, and that's kind of our main thing. It's an inspiration. We might love his good teaching and yet never grasp the centrality and the true meaning of the cross. We may feel, feel sympathy when we stand at the cross. I would say any pagan can feel sympathy to see a man on trumped-up charges crucified. Uh, we might feel sadness, maybe inspiration, when we look at the cross. But what about worship? What effect does the cross have on you? Does it bring you deep peace and joy and, and hope and security? Well, to get there, we have to see our need. We have to see what the cross actually accomplished. And so today, as we begin Holy Week on Palm Sunday... As Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a, on a humble donkey with tears, his heart is heavy for those who are rejecting him. Let's briefly meditate on the cross that he's gonna, he's, he has set his face towards, that he's going to go to in five days on Good Friday. Um, let's, let's meditate on the cross for a few minutes. First, I want to read our scripture for this morning from Luke 23 and Colossians 1, if you'll follow along. From Luke. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, they returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. And then Paul from Colossians 1, for in him, that's Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is God's word. Uh, my first job uh, was being a bag boy at Publix. Started, started at the bottom. Now we're here, right? Uh, I remember my manager's office 
was upstairs and they had a window that kind of looked over, overlooking us peons down there. And you know, one thing I never did was just roll up the stairs and plop on their couch and say, what's up? What's it? So what's going on? No, I knew my place. I, I was not worthy to, to even go up there. I just gazed at it from where I was at. And if you noticed in the reading of the law in Psalm 24, there's a similar question or scene or picture that's asked. Look at this question. The psalmist says, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in his holy place? In other words, who can, be, who can go be with God? And thankfully, it lays out the qualifications, which is nice. It says, well, he who has clean hands and a pure heart and does not swear deceitfully and so on. So now you can do a raise of hands at home if you qualify, if you meet that criteria. And I don't think anyone's hands would be raised at this point. I have some personal rules for, for my life. I don't, I don't like uh, consciously think of them. I haven't written them down, but I have a law. I mean, one of my rules for my life, for example, is don't yell in the house. And I have three little boys. And usually when I remind my boys of that, I'm yelling. Don't yell. If I'm honest, I don't live up to my own standards. I break my own rules and laws all, all the time. And I definitely don't live up to the standards of others. We all have a moral monitor inside of us. We have our own personal laws, sure. But we also hold many things in common, don't we? I mean, things that we all agree are just wrong, like murder and theft and Yankee fans and stuff like that. The Bible says this is because we're made in the image of God. That he, he put this moral monitor inside all of us. And there's one thing we can probably agree on. We, we, we don't live perfectly up to our own standards. We don't live perfectly up to the standards of others at all times. And now, even if you're not a Christian, hypothetically, if there were a God, we, we could probably agree upon that this God would be perfect and holy and just and good if there were a God. Therefore, his standard, his law would be perfect and good. And that's what the Bible teaches, that, that this perfect God made us to walk in his good ways. And as we walked in his good ways, we would find our greatest fulfillment and our greatest joy in walking with him. And yet, none of us have done that perfectly. I mean, even if outwardly you've done really well, kind of walk in the straight and narrow, what's your heart like? Is there lust? Is there pride? Is there envy? Is there hate? And just go to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and just see how far you make it without getting caught. Paul says in Romans, for all have sinned. We've all missed the mark and we've fallen short of the glory of God. In other words, we haven't walked with our maker as he designed us to. We believe the lie. And we've essentially told God, maybe not with our words or even maybe with our thoughts, but we've lived it out. Get out of my life. I'm the captain now, right? You're not really out for my good I know what's best for me. And that can look really kind and nice, but I'm going to go my own way. And in doing that, we have made a mess of things. And Romans says the, the wages of sin is death. That is, sinful living reaps bad consequences. We, and we know that when we live that way. It brings about miserable things. It's, it brings about death. And it has created a debt between us and God. This is the starting point for understanding the necessity of the cross of Jesus. That although we're made in his image and we're loved by God, our sins have put a separation between us and God. We read there, if you look in Colossians 1 verse 21, it says you were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And we have to go back to the beginning of the Bible to see this symbolism, right? Adam and Eve were in the garden with God. They were content. They walked with him. They were whole. No fear. 
No sadness, no tears, no brokenness. And yet they sinned. And what happened when they sinned? They were kicked out. They were kicked out of God's presence. They were removed from the garden. They couldn't get back in. Remember, there was a a flaming sword there. And when that happened, sin, like a virus, right? Like way worse than the coronavirus, as as bad as it is, began working its way through our world. Now, we can still see remnants of beauty, thank God, in this world. That's his common grace. We can see goodness. We can see it in other people, unbelievers. We see goodness in the world out there. Things aren't as bad as they could be, but we know things are not as they should be, and neither are we. We hurt ourselves. We, we hurt one another. Death has entered the world. No matter what your beliefs are, we can probably agree it's not supposed to be this way. Michael Scott asked Toby, why are you the way that you are? And I find myself asking, I think we all do, we ask, why are things the way that they are? And Christianity gives us a story for that. It gives us a framework to make sense of why I do what I do and feel the way I feel and why things happen the way that they do in the world. And the Bible says when that first sin happened, our first parents became orphans, alienated. That means strangers, outsiders. The kids' catechism I've been working on with my boys at home says that they went from happy and holy to sinful and miserable. They no longer knew their identity as God's children. So they started trying to make their own. They became lonely and restless and living in fear and pride to cover up their insecurity and shame and guilt. They went into hiding and we didn't fall far from the tree because that sounds just like our story. It is our story. And we're all homesick. We're in exile and we long for this sin disease to be gone from in us, from other people, from in the world, for all things to be restored as they should be. But there's a problem, and the problem is this. God is good, and therefore he is just, right? Goodness implies being just. And the Bible says each of us will stand before him and give an account of our actions and our thoughts and our words. Did we walk in the ways in which he designed us, our maker, uh, to, to walk? And so back to that question, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who could stand before him? Who could handle that? The obvious answer is no one. The Apostle Paul says, no one is good, at least according to that standard. None of us have clean hands and a pure heart. The law reveals that, which means the law, God's rules, God's good ways, were never a ladder designed for us to climb up to get to him. Rather, they show us how to live a full life pleasing to him, and it reveals our sin and our need for grace, and it grabs us by the arm like an usher and takes us to Jesus and says, you can't get there on, on your own. And so literally, listen, on page three of the Bible, the wheels fall off. It's a mess, and the rest of the entire Bible is driving to answer this question. How can sinful man and a holy God, the source of all good, who, who we're really longing for deep down, be together again? How can God be merciful to sinners without compromising his justice and therefore compromising his goodness and his own character? How can that how can that be? And the Bible says the only way is if God himself intervened to save us. If he chased his sad, wandering children down and restored what they had broken, if he settled our debts for us, if he closed the gap between us and himself. And so like the people in Jerusalem who cheered for Jesus as he entered the city on Palm Sunday because they thought this was a king who would come to fix their circumstances. He would drive the Romans out. 
We kind of think the same. We think, yay, finally, a king who's going to fix my biggest problem. He's going to make me successful and financially prosperous and healthy. And yet we find actually he came to solve a much deeper problem. You see, God, like a good parent, gives us what we most need rather than what we most want. And so God so loved the world that he sent his only son into the world. He became like us in order to redeem us. The angel showed up to his earthly father, Joseph, to tell him what his mission would be before he was born. And he says, you shall call his name Jesus in Matthew 1, and he will save his people from their sins. That was his mission, which means we have much more involvement in the cross than we realize. It's not this detached historical event. I mean, we're tempted to deny our sins, to to shift the blame on others, to defend ourselves in a vain effort to justify ourselves, which is ultimately just a way to say, I don't really need Jesus. My problem isn't that bad. But theologian John Stott said this, before we can see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. We sang a few minutes ago. Could you sing it? It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. So we look at his life, and as we walk through this uh, holy week with Jesus in the scriptures, do you see how the weight of sin and judgment on his spirit got heavier as he moves towards the cross? Do you see him weeping for those who would reject him as he rides into Jerusalem? And in his tears, we see the heart of God, who's not eager to punish, but he's patient, desiring that none should perish, but all should reach repentance. Do you see Jesus? What is happening on the cross? What's going on? In the garden, he's sweating drops of blood. Do you see the sinless son of God who'd always known perfect communion with his father on the cross, yelling out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Dad, where are you? Taking the father's frown, God turns his face away so he could smile upon us. Just as the priest in the Old Testament would lay his hand on the lamb and symbolically transfer the sins of the people onto this substitutionary lamb. Actually, two of them. They would sacrifice one, and the other they would send off into the wilderness. Right? Jesus is the true spotless Lamb of God. Right? When he showed up, what did John the Baptist say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. On the cross, he's taking the sins of the world upon himself. Colossians Corinthians says he's, he became sin for us. He was being sent away into the darkness so that we might be transferred into his kingdom of light, so that we might become the righteousness of God. He had no sin of his own to die for so he could take our sin, which the Roman soldier proclaims it here. If you look in Luke 23, verse 47, what does he say? He was innocent. And he's right. It was the innocent for the guilty so that the guilty could be made innocent. And this is what Israel had waited on for so long, right? Like All history had whispered about this moment. What happened when Adam and Eve sinned? God didn't put them to death. But he showed them grace. He clothed them in animal skins. Blood was shed to cover them. A few chapters later, Isaac was about to be put to death and a substitute ram was provided. When the sons of Israel were about to, were going to be put to death the night of the Passover, all right, the blood of the lamb covered them. And there were the sacrifices year after year and the prophets mysteriously foretold of one who would bear our griefs and carry our sorrows and be crushed for our iniquities so that we might be healed by his wounds. All of these were shadows that pointed to the real thing. Hebrews says, the blood of bulls and goats 
had to happen over and over because they couldn't really make atonement. But Jesus appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The cross is the wisdom of God on display. Because if he takes our sins upon himself, he's still just because sin is dealt with, and yet now he can show mercy because his wrath has been satisfied. Therefore, God is just, maintaining his character, and he's the justifier of the one who puts their faith in Jesus, Paul says. We see truth and grace. John Stott said the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, but the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. So the cross isn't Jesus pleading with a begrudging, angry God to loosen up. No, the cross was God's idea. Octavius Winslow said, Who delivered Jesus up to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. Right? The cross doesn't so much change God's mind about us, but it changes our mind about God. He's not against us. He's for us. He's good. He's worthy of trusting and following and giving our lives to. Is that a comfort to you? When Peter preached this message on Pentecost, his listeners were cut to the heart. They had this crisis, what shall we do moment where they realized, I'm a sinner in need of a savior. I can't stand before God as I am, but there is one who can, who loved me and gave himself for me. The cross is where we find the greatest revelation of our condition apart from him, that we're much worse than we think we are, which is profoundly humbling. But it's also where we find grace greater than all our sin. Infinite pardon, which gives us security and comfort. We're more loved than we could ever dream. So we don't have to go around trying to prove ourselves and wear a mask and fake it, but we can rest in his grace and his love for us. When Jesus cried out, it is finished from the cross, he didn't simply finish giving us a moral example. He didn't finish uh, giving us good teaching, but he finished his mission of atoning for our sins. Do you know? Do you know that your sins are forgiven? Like, how will you stand before God? The good news of the gospel says if your faith is in him, your judgment day is in the past and your sins are no more. You may remember them, but God does not. The Bible says he separated us from our sins as far as the east is from the west. He's buried them in the depths of the sea. He has reconciled you to the Father. He's made peace between you and God, making you a son or a daughter, an heir of the living God. And he promises, did you see that? In verse 22 in Colossians 1, he promises he will present you holy and blameless and spotless and above reproach before God on that final day. And through Jesus, we now have access to the Father. In verse 45 there in Luke, what happened? When Jesus died, the curtain was torn that separated the presence of God from everyone else. No one could go in there. The curtain was torn, symbolizing we can go to him. We can ascend the hill of the Lord boldly and find a throne of grace. This is the good news of the gospel. And the promise is even better. The cross is the good news that, that God not only has delivered us from sin's penalty, but he currently delivers us from its power in our lives. We don't have to live the way we once lived hostile in mind and doing evil deeds. He gives us a new mind and a new spirit to follow him. That's good news. It's good news for your guilt. It's good news for your shame that chases you and haunts you. It's good news for your despair because there is meaning. There is hope. It's good news for your pride 
You don't have to fake it and live that way. Is the cross, as Paul said in Galatians 6.14, is it your boast? Is it where you find confidence to go out into the world? Is it where you find your identity and your peace? Is it where you find hope in the midst of dark days? In times like now where things seem uncertain, are you looking to Jesus? Who is certain? Who's the same yesterday, today, and forever? If so, as we rest in him, he calls us to go with him. He says, hey, follow me into your Jerusalem, our own Jerusalem, and lay down your life for the sake of others. Trace your life and death with my life and death. If we've been forgiven by God at so great a cost, how can we not reflect that towards others? In verse 23, Paul says, since you've been brought in, continue in the faith. Keep following Jesus. Keep pressing on in the good news of the gospel. There's good news in Jesus. So let's pray. Let's rejoice in this good news. And let's ask God uh, for the endurance to walk in step with this good news. You pray with me. Father, thank you. This word is needed, uh, Lord, that you see us. The cross shows us you see us. You're with us. You haven't forgotten us. You'll never leave us nor forsaken us. Things are not out of control. On the cross, things looked like they were out of control. And yet that was your divine, mysterious plan. Truly, that gives us hope in times like these. Lord, soften our hearts to turn to you. If not for the first time, for the, for the 50th time, over and over again, turning back to you, being humbled, and yet being welcomed by grace. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for sending your only son to lay down his life for us so that we might know your presence, your goodness, that we might know forgiveness. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. says, for the righteous will never be moved. If you're in Jesus, nothing can separate you from his love. And it says, so he is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. The good news of Jesus with our eyes on the cross uh, gives us spirits without fear in this time. And we can go out into the world with confidence, with Jesus as our boast. So if your faith is in him, receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Thanks for joining us.